Well, folks, uh, this morning we'll be in uh, Daniel chapter 6. And folks, one of the things that I want you to understand as we begin to get into this chapter, uh, when you look at a godly man's life, there's normally someone that has laid a foundation in their life. For Daniel, it was the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah is very unique among prophets. Uh, he's not only a prophet of the Lord, he is a priest of the Lord. There are only three prophets in the Old Testament that were priests. It was Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. And the job of the priest was to bring the people close into fellowship with their God. Yet for 40 to 50 years, Jeremiah shared with the children of Israel. God had sent him to a very stubborn people. And he says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, I'm going to send you to the children of Israel. They are not going to receive your message. They're going to persecute you, but I expect you to be faithful. And Jeremiah says, now, Lord, let me get this straight. You're going to send me to a people that are not going to receive my words, and yet you, they're going to persecute me, but you expect me to be faithful. And he goes, that's exactly right, Jeremiah. I don't think Jeremiah ever truly understood the full meaning of his life and his ministry. So often, Often when God uses great men of God, it is for a generation to come. See, Jeremiah would never live to see the fruit of his life, folks. But out of his life would come tremendous fruit. Out of his life would come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out of his life would come the prophet Daniel. And out of his life would come Ezekiel. Ezekiel was awful, also a prophet and a priest and a contemporary of the Lord. And all of these men observed the prophet Jeremiah. They saw the way that he ministered. They saw the persecution he went through. They saw the trouble of his life. They saw the people reject him, and they saw the consequences of a nation when they rejected their God, and they learned the lesson from the prophet Jeremiah, and were able to give that to another generation. You know, this morning we're going to be sharing with you folks, and to give you a little bit of an understanding... I've been working in the Sudan for the last 18, going on 19 years. Uh, the last 14 years, we became the official training arm of the Southern Sudanese Army of training all chaplains for their military. We have a very intense Bible school. We get our guys up at 5 o'clock in the morning from 5.30 to 6.30. We run them 7 to 8 miles. We run them straight up a mountain and straight back down a mountain. Then we have 8 hours of class time and 2 and a half hours of study time daily. We only feed them 2 meals a day of beans and corn maize. We give them meat about once every two weeks and vegetables occasionally. And the reason we do this is because once they graduate and they're deployed to forward operation units within the South Sudan Army, they go into extremely heavy combat conditions. And if we do not train them hard, they will not be able to survive it. This morning, we're going to be looking at the prophet Daniel, and we'll be tying all of this together for you. But I chose Daniel because Daniel is unique among prophets. So often when you read a great, about great men of God, you find that they have shortcomings in their walk with the Lord. I think of David while he he uses a standard throughout the Word of God. We know that he committed adultery. We know that he committed murder. I look at Moses, who was known to be the, uh, the friend of God and spoke face to face with God, but he was often timid about doing the work of God. But if there was ever any shortcoming in Daniel's life, it is not recorded in biblical history. And I think that there is a good reason why, because it says in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the things of this world. Now, at the timeline this is written, Daniel is a teenage boy. We don't know exactly how old he is. Some theologians say early teens, others believe later teens. But by the time we get to chapter 6, a lot is going to have happened in Daniel's life, and he's close to 90 years of age. It is a time in life that you think that your race would be coming to an end, you would be putting your house in order, but God is preparing to use this man in one of the greatest ways that he has ever used anyone in the Word of God. And we'll start by reading in verse 1. 
in chapter 6 of Daniel. It says it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or any man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the window open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days that anyone who prays to any God or any man, except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answers, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, king, or the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. Now folks, one of the things that we need to understand here is that Daniel is actually being persecuted for righteousness sake. I probably have a better understanding of the scripture than most of you just because of the area of the world that I live in. But often in Africa, the Middle East, when you have wealthy men, they will hire administrators to oversee their affairs. It is very common for these men to skim money off the top and money off the bottom and they call it making an extra commission for themselves. Strangely enough, they do not consider it to be stealing. The owners do, but they do not. And I think this was exactly what was happening with Daniel, because it said that Daniel so distinguished himself that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I believe that Daniel's receipts, his earnings for the king were so greater than anyone else that the king was going to put him in this position of authority. Had Daniel not been a threat to these men, I don't think they would have cared. But they know that Daniel is different than them. He is a righteous man. He is a godly man he will most likely expose their deeds. And at the very least, they will lose their position. At the very most, they might lose their lives. And I think that's why they decided that they needed to get rid of Daniel. Had Daniel not been a threat, I don't think that they would have cared. They said, would have said, let him have the position. In a few years, he'll be gone, and then one of us will take it. But knowing who he was and knowing his character, they realized they need to get rid of Daniel. One of the reasons that Daniel went home and prayed three times a day is because he understood the word of God. 
God. See, when King Solomon dedicated the new temple in Jerusalem, he prayed a prayer and he said, oh Lord, if there's ever a time that your people sin against you and you send a foreign army into the land and they take your people off into exile, if your people will get down on their knees, if they will face this temple and they will pray, then bring them back into the land. And that was exactly what Daniel was doing according to 1 Kings chapter eight. He was interceding on behalf of the people. One of the things that I love about Daniel is that when he hears the edict, he immediately goes home to pray. You know what, folks? Daniel could have easily avoided this storm. He could have said, you know what? I know exactly what these guys are up to. Rather than go to the window for the next 30 days, what I will do is I'll go into my inner court. I will go into my inner sanctum. I will pray in private until this storm passes. But Daniel understands something about the word of God. If you remember when King David sinned by sleeping with another man's wife, Bathsheba, God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And the prophet Nathan said, David, by your sin, you have given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And what he was saying is by your actions, you're, you're making people say the things of God are not the things of God. Daniel realizes that should he not stand, he will completely misrepresent who the living God is. And he is not willing to do this. One of the things that we need to understand as believers is the Bible says that all who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is a promise from the Lord that if you live a godly life, you will be persecuted for your faith. You know, folks, the prophet Jeremiah had tremendous trouble with the children of Israel because there were false teachers, there were false people in the time, and they were telling the king and they were telling the people that their sin did not matter, that they were okay with their God, and they were not okay with their God. Jeremiah was standing against the tide. This is what is happening in our generation today. We're living in a time where people do not understand what is right from wrong anymore. We are being told that the sins that the Bible is very clear will keep them out of the kingdom of God. We're telling them they're okay. And because of that, we are lying to the people. Ezekiel also understood this because in Ezekiel chapter 3 and chapter 33, he said, you are to go to the people, you are to tell them about their sin. If you do not go to the people and you do not tell them about their sin, I will require their blood on your hands. And see, this is one of the things that all of these men learn from the prophet Jeremiah. One of the things we need to understand is we will be persecuted in our own personal walk with the Lord. If you were a believer and you have been walking with Jesus Christ and you have never been persecuted, I can promise you at some point, if you are truly walking with the Lord, you will be persecuted and it will be completely outside of your control. But by the way that you handle it will determine what your true character is in Jesus Christ. You know, folks, I was thinking of a time in my own personal life when I was persecuted outside of my control. But before being a missionary to the Sudan for the last 18 years, I used to work in the former Soviet Union and I would travel all across the former Soviet Union, going from prison to prison, preaching the gospel, showing the Jesus film, putting in libraries and giving the boys Bibles. And I would go both to children's prisons and adult prisons for the youth, for women, for adults. And it was a great time of life. During this five years, we had about 70,000 prisoners pray to give their life to Jesus Christ. But about three times a year, I would get teams that would come in from America. And when these teams would come in, we'd have special drama, special music, special testimony, and it was a great time of life. Well, on this one particular team that we had, we were assigned a Russian major and a Russian captain from the Ministry of Interior. And when we first got these guys, we thought things were going to go extremely well with them. Matter of fact, it seemed like we were connecting with these men. When we would go into the prison, we'd sing one song called 
Take me into the Holy of Holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Well, the Russian major in particular seemed to really love this song. As a matter of fact, when we got done tonight and we came back, he wanted us to re-sing it sometimes two or three times. He wanted to know the words of it. And we thought he was absolutely going to get saved until we got to one particular prison. When we arrived at this one particular prison, we were assigned a young girl from the Ministry of Interior to be an interpreter for us. She was 23 years old, she was very young, and she was very beautiful. But I also noticed that the Russian major's eyes were immediately set upon this young girl. Well, one Sunday we went out to the prison to do our ministry. We got back just before lunchtime. So we decided to have lunch and then walk downtown and see the city center. As you would exit the hotel, you'd walk down a flight of stairs, you'd make a left, another quick left, and it was about a 25 minute walk into town. But if you walked an extra 10 or 15 feet, you'd see the parking lot. Well, for some reason I walked that extra 10 or 15 feet just to turn around and tell everybody to go this way. And when I did, I saw the Russian major, the Russian captain, and our bus driver getting on the bus with this young woman, and they had two large bottles of vodka with them. And I knew exactly what their intentions were for this young girl. Now guys, I don't like conflict any more than anyone else, but I also know when not to run from a battle. So I turned to my team and I said, listen guys, you need to pray, I've gotta deal with this situation. And I got on the bus and in my most diplomatic way, I tried to negotiate with these men. I said, listen guys, I am a pastor. This is a foreign mission organization. This young girl's been assigned to us. She is under the covering of our ministry. She's 23 years old. She's engaged to be married. All of you men are in your 40s. You are married. It is completely inappropriate for her to be on this bus. You need to allow her to get off this bus and come with us immediately. I got an extremely firm no from these men. So I went into a little bit more detail. The second time I got a firmer no, and the third time I got a threat, folks, and it was a very real threat. They said, Wes, should you not leave, we will report this to the Ministry of Interior and you will never, ever be allowed to come into these prisons again. One of the things I teach my guys in Africa is when you know what the right thing to do, do it immediately. Because if you do not, you will compromise in your relationship with the Lord. So I turned to my own personal interpreter, Oxana, and I said, Oxana, I need you to repeat word for word what I'm about to say to these guys. And if you change one word of it, I'm going to fire you. And I hated doing it to her because she was a young girl and she was afraid, but I also knew that she would water down what needed to be said to these men. And I said, listen guys, if you do not allow this young girl to get off this bus right now, we are going to fight. And I'm going to beat you guys within an inch of your life. And when I'm done beating you, I'm not going to throw you out the windows of this bus. I'm going to throw you through the windows of this bus. Now, one of the things that we need to remember, folks, is we are not responsible for the outcome of battles. We are responsible to go into the battles. Daniel clearly understands this. The truth be told, I knew that I could handle the Russian major and the Russian captain pretty easily. But the Russian bus driver looked like a Russian weightlifter, and I wasn't sure whether I could handle that guy or not. And I really thought we were going to start fighting when all of a sudden they said, okay, and they allowed the young girl to get off the bus. The entire 25 minutes downtown, she talked to me the entire way. I do not remember a single word of what she said to me because what was going through my mind at the time was the consequences of my decision. I knew it was the right decision, but I was troubled by the consequences. After all these years, after all this ministry, after seeing 70,000 prisoners be set free in Christ, I was extremely troubled by the consequences of the decision. When we got downtown, 
There was a city to the city center. There was a park there, uh, about somewhere between somewhere between seven, nine, eleven of her girlfriends. I don't exactly remember how many were down there. And she went over there and she shared with these girls what had happened. And they came over and they said, "We want to know about your God. We want to know about Jesus Christ." So we shared with them, and every one of those girls that day prayed to give their life to Jesus Christ. Now the truth be told, nothing ever came of it, and I do not know why. Maybe they felt like they'd be exposed. Maybe they felt like they'd be found out. But what we need to remember as believers is we're not responsible for the outcome of battles. We are responsible to go into the battles. Daniel understands that this is a death sentence for him, but he does not care. He does not fear man. He fears the Lord. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is fear the Lord. The beginning of foolishness is to fear man above the Lord. We're living in a generation where our government is trying to legislate and tell us what is good and what is evil. And they're now saying that evil is good and good is evil. If you hold on to foundational Christian faith, you are now considered to be in the wrong. You are not politically correct. We were never supposed to be politically correct. We were supposed to be biblically correct. See, folks, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we talk about it as a reverent fear of the Lord. But it is far more than a reverent fear of the Lord. It is an awe-inspiring fear of what, what happens when you fall into the hands of an angry God. And we need to understand there is a consequences to disobedience to the Lord. For the children of Israel, it was exiled in Babylon for 70 years. We don't think something like this could happen to this nation. But trust me, through the hand of the living God, something absolutely could happen to us if we continue on the road that we are going. And we need to stand against the tide of evil. We're living in a generation where men do not understand their role anymore. They honestly do not understand what God has created them for. You know, folks, a number of years ago, I went to Hawaii. I was called out there to speak at two different conferences. I had one on one weekend, one on another. We had Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services, a lot of midweek Bible studies. But there was a lot of free time during the week. And I remember that one day my assistant, Ed Gaunt, and I, we walked out of the hotel to get lunch. And we're walking downtown. And on this island, there's this huge mall. And all of a sudden, I see about six or seven guys coming out of the small. They're all between the ages of about 21 to 27 years of age. And they're carrying these little frilly bags that say Dolce Gabbana, Louis Vuitton, Armani, Christian Dior. You know, we call them men's purses. Guys, if it has the word purse on it, men's doesn't belong anywhere next to it. It just doesn't exist. But see, this is the generation we're living in. Men do not understand their role anymore. They honestly do not understand what God has created them for. I looked over it and I said to my assistant, Ed, I go, Ed, I go, there is just something wrong with this. I go, when was it that men got so into fashion? When did they forget what they're created for? I mean, these guys are so stupid. They don't even know what men's jeans look like anymore. It looks like they went to the little sister's closet and put their little sister's jeans on this morning, you know. But see, folks, this is the generation we're living in. We do not understand as men what we were created for. Daniel clearly understands what God has created him for. He's going to stand against the tide. I'm very fortunate living in Africa because I live among men that are warriors, folks, and they're warriors in every sense of the word. A lot of the chaplains in my corps joined the military when they were nine years of age. They've been combat soldiers since they were nine years old. We have one chaplain by the name of Obadon 
And Obadon is in special forces within the South Sudan army. And uh, the way that they train these guys, they call them commandos, is they send them to Ethiopia for six months. Every morning they get them up, they give them a backpack full of stones, and for four hours a day, they run them through the Ethiopian mountains to make them battle-hardened soldiers. They want no fat content on their body at all. They want them to be battle-hardened, to have tremendous endurance. One day, Obadon was running up the mountain, and he fell, and he dislocated his right foot, and his right foot almost turned backwards. He got back up, he put his backpack back on his back, and he started running up the mountain with one foot forward and one foot to the side. And when he did, the Ethiopian commander came over and he goes, Obadon, he goes, you've broken your foot. He goes, yes, I know. He goes, how are you able to do this? He goes, I was a chaplain that was trained by Farajee Ministries, and he explained the training program that we put him through. He goes, we're special forces, and you guys are better trained than we are. All six of our guys that went to that school graduated one through six at the top of the class and were deployed to the presidential unit of the South Sudanese army where they're among the president, the vice president, the generals, and the leaders of the nation. And they are having a great effect. We have another chaplain by the name of Elijah Mading. And folks, Elijah's a big bull of a chaplain. He's a big, strong guy. He kind of looks like a Cape Buffalo with a shave, you know. But he joined the military when he was nine years of age. He ran away from home. And when he ran away from home to join the military, they sent him back three times. He came back three times, so they put him in a hole in the ground, and they said, Elijah, you're not going to get out of that hole until you're willing to go home. After a long period of time, they realized he wasn't going to come out of the hole. So at nine years of age, he became a guerrilla warrior. He is now the official tra- chaplain for the president of southern Sudan, Sevakil. And folks, Sevakil is a very imposing man. He's probably about six foot six, six foot seven. He's a massive man, a natural leader, a born warrior. And he's a big man. He's a very intense man. But he's also a Catholic. And he goes to Mass every Sunday. Well, there's a large Catholic church in the capital of Juba, and it holds about 3,000 people. Uh, Elijah being his chaplain, he always goes with the president. Well, one Sunday, the speaker systems broke down in the church. So the priest gets up, and he yells from the pulpit. He goes, the speaker systems are not working. And all the people in the church went, Amen. So the priest got back up there and goes, I'm telling you the speaker systems are not working. And the people go, and God be with you. So you kind of get a feeling that nobody's really listening to the context of the message there. But over the course of one of the services, the priest quotes five different verses in five different books of the Bible. But he never gives the context of where the verses are. All time, five times, Elijah turns in his Bible and he shows them where all five verses were. John chapter three, whatever. And as he did it, The president, when it was over with, he goes, Elijah, he goes, how did you know where all those verses were in the Bible? He said, I was a chaplain that was trained by Farjuichi Ministries. He said, those people are extremely serious about the work. You tell Wes to come and see me. You know, folks, we knew that war was going to come again to the Sudan. We were preparing for it. We have many guys that are in active combat as we are speaking right now. The enemy just launched a massive attack that's on its way to the Nuba Mountains, the southern Kordofan Valley right now. We're told there were over a thousand trucks of supplies that the enemy's coming in to hit our area to attack the Christian south. This is Islamic north. And so we're preparing for another major war. But you know, I sent for seven of our senior chaplains to prepare for the coming war. And when we sent for them, we brought them down 
And my wife, Vicki, made a beautiful spaghetti dinner with some type of salad and some type of dessert. And we brought down Elijah Medine. We brought down Peter Ketch. And we brought down uh, Lino. Lino's been shot five times in combat, including once in the head. We brought down uh, 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 Peter. Peter's a, a legend among the South Sudan army folks because often during the war, if they were losing a battle, he carries a cross with him everywhere he goes. He would literally walk right out on the battlefield, hold it up, and start to worship the Lord. And the soldiers would say, Peter, how did you not get shot? And he would say, no, the Bible says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So we say, bullet, you're bound. And God says, bullet, and the bullet says, yes, sir. And he goes, do not touch my servant. And the bullet says, yes, sir. And God has honored that in Peter's life. Well, when we brought them down there, uh, I brought Peter over this large bowl of spaghetti and gave it to him. And my wife, Vicki, walks over and she goes, Peter, would you like some salad to go with your spaghetti? And he looked at her and he goes, uh, Vicki, he goes, first let me destroy this one here. And then I will aim my attack at that one over there, you know. They don't know what it is to be effeminate. They've never been trained that way. When Elijah finished his meal, he goes, Vicki, he goes, do not worry. He goes, I have liberated all of my territories, you know. But folks, they, they literally think like combat soldiers because they have been combat soldiers from their youth. You know, when I first went to Southern Sudan, like most people, I was going to be a Bible teacher, an evangelist, a pastor. I never dreamed that we would actually have to physically get involved in the longest running civil war in Africa. See, folks, in the last 60 years of the nation, there's been 37 years of declared war, but there's been over 50 years of fighting in the southern Sudan. But what began to happen was the rebels began to come down and attack villages. In one village they hit, it was called Machwini. They took 58 newborn babies and they crushed their heads against trees. They would come down and take all the women from the age of nine years old and above and rape them to impregnate them to make future soldiers for the military. The women that they didn't want and they didn't kill, they would cut their lips off of them, their noses, their ears, their breasts, because they wanted to bring great terror to the people. And they were extremely effective about doing that. And the Lord told me, you have got to do something about this. So we began to build sanctuaries for the children to come in at night. When the sun would come down, you would see a trickle of children coming into the city. But by the time the sun went down, folks, thousands upon thousands of women and children would be coming into the city sitters. Under every tree, under every veranda, wherever there's a place, they would be coming in looking for sanctuary against the rebels. Among the South Sudan army, they are great warriors. They're extremely tenacious in battle. But one of the things that I knew about them, they would often fight very hard until they realized they could not win a battle. When they realized they could not win a battle, they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. One of the villages they pulled back in, we came in right after they did, and the Islamic forces came in and they built these huge bonfires and they burned the toddlers and the babies alive. When we got there, we could see the little cranials, the little spinal cords running throughout the fire. And the Lord told me, you've got to do something about this. So we sent the men down and we said, guys, we want you to understand something here. We go, it is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We are men, they're women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. We are called to protect those that cannot protect themselves. We are called to care for those that cannot care for themselves. We know the tactic of the enemy. They do not hit hard targets. They don't come with 200 men and fight 200 men. They're cowards. They come with 200 men and they fight where there's five men. So if they come with 200 men one day and there's five of us, just know this is the day you're going to go home to meet the Lord. 
and you stand and you fight to the last man. If four of your brothers fall, this is not your cue to get up and run. You hold the line because in doing so, maybe another 10 or 20 women and children escape. See folks, I don't know if you've ever seen a child that's truly terrified before, but probably the most vivid image in my mind was of a little girl. She was about three and a half years old. Her mother was killed in a rebel attack. She was just a little waif of a thing, little tiny arms, little tiny legs. We actually took her off the body of her dead mother. And I can remember this little thing sitting in my wife's lap and she's trembling, not just a part of her, her whole body is just shaking. See, she's too young to understand what's going on. She's a baby, she's a child. But all she knows is that in Southern Sudan and Northern Uganda is that the boogeyman is real and he comes to kill. And the heart that we have for these children is to be able to say to them, Honey, you lay your head down tonight and you sleep and you dream the dreams that a child is supposed to dream. Nobody's going to hurt you tonight, not on my watch. See, tonight the body of Christ is going to wrap its arms around you and we're going to protect those that cannot protect themselves. We're going to care for those that cannot care for themselves. We as God's people should understand that we are to be set apart from this world. We have a love affair with the world and the pleasures of the world. We were never to be like this. We were to be a people that were consumed with the great commission to literally have a burden for the lost, to reach people with the great hope and the great love of Christ. But we've lost that. The last class that we teach our guys before graduation is preparation for martyrdom. And I sit the guys down and I say, guys, we're not all supposed to live to be 70, 80 years of age. Some of you men will fall in your 20s and some of you will fall in your 30s. See, it's not how long you live, but how you live. So run with endurance the race that God has set before you. A race has a beginning and a race has an end. And when you cross that finish line, it's time to go home and be with the Lord. Many of you men are going to know the day that you're going to die. You'll be in a combat situation. You will look around and you're going to realize, I am not going to make it out of this. And when you do, you breathe Jesus Christ to the last breath. See, God has created us as men for a purpose. We were created for battle. One thing I have learned in life, if you lead, men will follow. But folks, they don't follow speech, they follow leadership. I rise at 4.40 in the morning to meet with my senior chaplains. The first two to three hours of every day, six days a week, we spend it in prayer. Why? Because if we teach it, but we do not live it, it will lose the effect on the men's life. 14 years ago, I led a junior commander in the South Sudanese Army to Jesus Christ. He is now one of the commanding generals of the entire Southern Sudanese Army. He has 300,000 men under arms. And he called me to his headquarters and he goes, my brother, I know that you've been with me through all these many years of war, but war is coming again to the Sudan and I need you for this next war. I said, brother, you don't need to worry. I said, the men are already deployed, but you must promise me one thing. He goes, what's that, my brother? I said, you must promise me that when military operations break out, that I can be at the front lines with my men. Wherever the fighting is the most fiercest, that's where I need to be. And I need to move from battlefront to battlefront because if I teach it, but I do not live it, it will lose the effect on the men's life. He goes, I promise you, my brother, that you and I will be at the front lines together. See, folks, we were created for a purpose. We were created to get in the battle. In the chaplain's corps, we teach our men to live by a code of ethics. It is a code that holds together the very fabric of our corps. We call it the Knight's Code. I want to read you folks the Knight's Code. To fear God and protect his church. To serve the Lord in valor and faith. To protect the weak and the defenseless to give refuge to widows and orphans, to refrain from the giving of offense, to live by honor and for the glory of God, to fight for the welfare of all, to obey those placed in authority, 
to guard the honor of your fellow knights, never to refuse the challenge when the innocent are in peril, to keep faith at all times to speak the truth, to respect the honor of women, and never to turn your back upon a foe. There is a code that we live by as men. The last time I was in Sudan, I was addressing the ladies in our compound. I go, ladies, I want you to understand something. I go, if the enemy comes, I go, we will stand, we will fight, and we will die. But we will not surrender you to the wicked. I don't know if you know what that means to women when men have not fulfilled their role before. It literally means everything for them to know that men will behave the way that they were supposed to behave, the way that God created them. Folks, I want you to take a look at Daniel here because they take this 90-year-old man and they throw him into the lion's den. Now, these lions were bred for ferocity. They take the most fierce male lion, the most fierce female lion, and they would breed them, and then they would keep them in a near state of starvation so that when they threw you in there, they would literally tear you apart. These lions dens are still in modern day Iraq. They say they're 20 feet deep. I've been told so that the bones of the people are still in the bottom of them. I don't know. I've been told that. But they take this 90-year-old man and they throw him in here. But look what happens. It says, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels. He shut up the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. Folks, I want you to get this. No wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. There are many an individual, they wound themselves because they do not trust in their God. I, as a pastor, have counseled many young women over the years, and I always do it with, with compassion, but I've had many young ladies say, you know, I met this guy, and he was very suave, very dynamic, and everybody liked him. He was the life of the party, and he told me he loved me, and I was his soulmate, and if I would just give myself to him, he would love me forever, so I did, and he loved me until he found what he thought was better, and then he moved on, and folks, I do it with compassion, but I'll often ask them, did not the Holy Spirit warn you to not get in this relationship? Well, yes, but I thought that I, they have wounded themselves because they have not trusted in their God. Now, ladies, if you have gone through this, God does not want you to feel that your life is over with. The Bible says forgetting the things that are behind and pressing on to the high calling in Christ Jesus. See, when God says no, it's because of his great love for you. Image is what he portrays to you character is what God knows he is, and he is trying to protect you from the wounds that he does not want you to bear. It says here, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown in the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now guys, it was never God's intention for the women and children to pay for the father's sin. This was a Babylonian and an oriental custom. But there's a very strong biblical point here. Often we think if we sin and no one knows about it, it doesn't hurt anything. It's not the way it is. Sin has a webbing effect of how it reaches out and touches many lives. And that's why God says, be holy because I am holy. Now by one man standing, an entire generation is going to know who the living God is. Do you know that by one man standing, nations have been saved? During the darkest hours of the Second World War, when Nazi Germany overran all of Europe, all of North Africa, and they got within 20 kilometers of Moscow, and it seemed like they were absolutely undefeatable, Winston Churchill, the prime minister of England, stood up and said, we will fight them in the air. We will fight them on land. We will fight them at sea. We will never surrender. 
As Christians, we should never surrender. There is no surrender for the believer. But look at the testimony of King Darius. I wanted to read this to you the way that I think he meant for us to hear us. It said, then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. By one man standing, an entire generation knew who the living God is. Folks, we have a DVD. And these are of our Nubian chaplains. They are in combat as we speak. And I think it's going to encourage you to see what men look like that really love Jesus Christ. And then we'll just take a moment to close. So, guys, let's go ahead and show that. These are the chaplains of far-reaching ministries. They have come to the FRM compound in Sudan to be equipped for war. But they prepare not only for a physical battle, but also for a spiritual battle. A war over the souls of men and women caught in the grips of unthinkable atrocities. These are the men that will carry much more than bullets and rifles into battle as they bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the front lines of war. <laughs> Exactly what happened in Nuba Mountain, there is a war between us, Nubians, and the government of Northern Sudan. Uh, exactly, if they want to attack, they are not looking for the place where the army stay. Uh, always they are attacking a place of civilians or areas of civilians. And then they, they will leave us there as the soldiers in the barrack and then they will come and attack the civilians with Antonov and uh, something like this. Uh, up to now? Uh, up to now, they are still bombing the village of civilians. So the militia come and attack that uh, village. Actually, there were a lot of uh, these school children, a lot of uh, the women, so they were gathered there. So the militia attacked that village and uh, they burned that uh, village completely. So even they're killing these small children. So when they ask what, why they're killing these small children and these women, they say because if these people grow up tomorrow, they are the ones who are going to join the SPLA and they are the ones who are going to fight high so they are going to kill them. They start to attack us and also come to our place where we, we stay 
and then burn some our houses and kill our children and take women's up to now. Uh, they took them and then some of them, they say that this is my wife because it's a soldier of his fellow wife. It's uh, right for me to take it. And then they raped some women's and then uh, the women who refused to be raped by, by soldiers of government and then they beat them and kill them. Really, it was been painful for all the Ispele in Nuba Mountain. Even the commanders was been painful for these things because it was been you cannot even accept this one because you can see women here pregnant die, his children in the arm shooted, and then if they caught, they got maybe child of Nubian, they cut him with a knife like this, slaughtering some people. It was been really tough, tough, tough at uh, that time. We told them that uh, be encouraged. Uh, Jesus Christ love you because you have seen the terrible war and the terrible killing and a lot of things you have seen with your eyes. But now God have delivering you from that. You just say thank you to the Lord. Say thank you to Jesus. You have a right now to turn from your sin, to turn for what you are doing to the Lord. And uh, never mind about your children or your wife and uh, your property that have got burned. Because we know Job was being lose all his, his property and his children, but his love was still in the God and he was still trusting in the God. That is why we're encouraging them that you just have a patience. For everything on the wall here, you can get it if you have a face in Jesus Christ. But if you don't have a face, you can lose it. Here on the earth, you can lose it on the heaven. And the little children of you that have died here, you just make sure you are going to meet them in heaven. Since the production of this DVD, which is about a year ago, we now have to add three more names to the list of fallen chaplains that were killed in the service of our Lord. I want to share with you about one of our chaplains, folks. We had heard that he had fallen at the front lines. At the time, we did not know his name. When communications come from the front lines, it is high-level encrypted military communication. They don't give you personal facts about people. Their military was going into the largest battle they would fight that year. The enemy came with 30,000 soldiers. We had 3,000 soldiers. 
They had helicopter gunships. They had aircraft. They had tanks. We had foot soldiers. This chaplain, knowing that many of his men would be lost in the service of our Lord, used the tools that God gave him to fight. Do you know what he was doing the last three days of his life? He was praying and fasting for his men when he fell into the arms of the Messiah. What will the last three days of your life look like? Will you be about the Father's business? Or will you be engaged in the things of this world? We later learned that the chaplain's name was Daniel. He gave all so that others might live. Why do we choose to live these lives, folks? So that others might know the great hope and the great love of Jesus Christ. We as God's people are called to have a passion for the lost, a passion for the Lord. We've got caught up in the things of the world. We have sold into a lie that our lives don't have this kind of meaning that we think it should. But we were meant for the gospel. We were meant to reach the lost with the great hope and the great love of Jesus Christ. We were never to love the world the way that we love it. And that is why we were ineffective as a body of believers. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity. I know that many of you are Christians. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. To see, folks, God doesn't want 75% of you. He doesn't want 85% of you. He doesn't want 95% of you. With Jesus Christ, we are to be all in. We are to be completely sold out for the gospel. You may be a man. You may be a woman. You may be saved. You may not have ever given your life to Jesus Christ. But see, God wants you fully surrendered. I want to share with the men that so often when I give these altar calls, the first 20 that come forward are the women. And I just want to say, guys, it should not be this way. You were not only meant to lead, you were meant to lead from the front. You were supposed to set an example and give your family and your children a legacy of righteousness. So this morning, whether you're a man or woman, if this is the life you want, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your chairs and come down here, and we're going to pray for you. It doesn't matter who's else in there or what they think about you. God has come here to do business with you today. Have you come here to do business with him? This morning, if this is the life you want, just get up out of your chairs and come down, and we're going to pray that God would empower you. Folks, I know that we can turn the tide in this nation. The hour is late, it is dark, and the enemy's armies have, they're at the gates, and they're ready to destroy. But if God's people will heed his word, because his word says, if my people who are called by my name will repent of their wicked ways and turn to me, then I will heal their nation. He doesn't say people of the world. He said, if my people who are called by my name and we as God's people have to have this love and this passion for the Lord. It should so drive our lives. We should have a burden for the lost. I want to say a sinner's prayer here in a moment. I'm going to ask you just to repeat after me. I'm going to say a prayer for both the believer and the non-believer because there are probably people here today that are not born again. It's going to be a prayer of repentance and a prayer of coming together. And as I say this prayer, I'm going to ask you to repeat it out loud because, folks, it is so important that we make a public profession. Jesus said, if you will confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven.
So we're going to confess before man right now. Just repeat after me. Father, I just confess that I am a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord, my God, and my Savior. This morning, I surrender my life to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would take my life and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, folks, I want to talk to you for just a moment about what's next, because most people do not know what to do. As believers, we are to have a prayer life. Fathers, the greatest legacy you can leave your children is that they know that you rise in the morning and pray before you go to work. It doesn't have to be two or three hours, but to rise and spend 30 minutes in prayer will leave your children a legacy of righteousness. We need to be in God's Word. Many of you don't know how to study the Word of God. You know, guys, my study time in America is Tuesday night when my staff goes home. Often I'm there until 1 or 1.30 in the morning. And I get up my Bible commentaries and I get my iPod. There's great teachers out there, Joe Foch, Pastor Chuck, many non-Calvary teachers. And you just go through the Word and you will grow in the Lord. You need to be sharing your faith. See, we often think of that as being the pastors or the leadership of the church job. No, we're all called to share our faith. You may not be good at it, but just go to your neighbors, your relatives, your friends, the people you work with and say, why don't you come to church on Sunday? You're going to love the music. You're going to love the fellowship. You're going to love the teaching, which is true. They will. Matter of fact, I'll take you out to lunch afterwards. What do you like? You like Mexican? You like barbecue? You like barbecue? I can always get them with Mexican or barbecue. I just roll them right on in. The last thing before I ask Pastor Kevin to come up and close is you need to be tithing to your home church. Now, guys, Pastor Kevin did not ask me to talk to you about this. It is something that the Lord has laid heavily on my heart. The Bible says that we are to give the first of our fruits to the Lord, not the last. See, the Bible says, why are you robbing God? Matter of fact, it's the only place in God's Word. He says, test me and see if I will not be faithful. When our country just went through a tremendous recession, we grew all the way through the recession, but we also tithe all the way through. We didn't do it to get the reward, we did it to bless the Lord, but God has honored it. As you leave this morning, if you would like to be a part of the work, we do have a table outside. And folks, let me help you to understand the heart of why we share this. Not that we might receive, but that you might store your treasures in heaven. We have a class of about 60 chaplains that just graduated. They're being deployed to the front lines right now. It is $40 a month to support one of these guys. Now we ask that you would not take it out of your church tithing. If you could not afford to do it as a gift above and beyond, we don't want you to do it. On the back it has their testimony, their favorite scripture. Most of my guys speak between four and seven languages. Some of them speak 13. If you'd like to do this, you must pick out a chaplain fill out the form and give it back to us. It's an automatic debit, comes out on the third of each month. Voided checks are best because we don't pay fees, but we do take debit and credit cards. And if you don't have your information, but you would like to do it, just fill it out and sign it, and we'll call you later. Also, there's a place called Most Needed. Most Needed is when ABA was hit, we sent 20,000 pounds of food. When Nuba Mountains was hit, we sent $85,000 in medical supplies. When the Syrian Christians are being crucified right now, most people don't know that. They're crucifying Christians. We just sent $55,000 over to feed the Syrian church. That's what most needed is. 
You can do one, you can do both. You can sponsor more than one chaplain if you'd like. But again, please make it a gift above and beyond to the Lord. My prayer for you as a church, if you will take this to heart, if you will begin to live this out and you will begin to go out and share your faith, do you guys realize that in a year this church will triple? And what does that mean? It means that you are effectively being a light for Christ. We don't grow because we're looking for church growth. We don't grow because we want to be recognized by men. We want to grow because we love the Lord and we have a desire that others might know Him the way that we know Him. The greatest pleasure of my life is I've led two lieutenant generals, three brigadier generals, a governor, and the vice president of the nation to Jesus Christ. And to sit down and bow with those men, I just came from the commanding general of the Southern Sudanese Army's house. I was at his house for a week, and he now rises every day to pray for an hour before he goes into work because the gospel has captivated him. I do want to share with you, though, that if your chaplain is killed in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will send you a letter and we'll say, we're sorry to inform you that the chaplain that you were sponsoring was killed in the service of our Lord. And while you may be dear, dear to him, when one man falls, we send another one straight back to the front lines. Because if we do not, the enemy will come in like a flood. And we are going to protect those that cannot protect themselves. If you will support the men, we will, we will protect the women and children, even at the cost of our very lives. Pastor Kevin, God bless you.